Welcome to Time and Materials, the podcast covering the tough topics for growing early stage professional services firms. I'm your host, Chris Hart. The podcast today will be summarized in the Time and Materials newsletter. You can find that on Substack and at my website, chris-hart.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-H-A-R-T.com. Now on to today's episode. Welcome to the podcast. Today, we're going to be discussing services, businesses, culture, and have a particular focus on remote working culture. And to do that, I'm joined by Atur Suleiman, who's a super experienced founder in the space. We're going to talk about his background and all of his experiences in building cultures in IT services businesses and how to do that in a, a very remote-centric kind of way in a second. But first, Atur, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you for having me. So I know a big part of what we're going to talk about today is culture. And I know this is a, a thing that's both you and I have a lot of passion around because we've had conversations about it before. But before we get into that, I think it's helpful for folks who don't know you to have a little bit of background about really kind of how you came about knowing about this and the services business that you built. So maybe you can just give us a little bit of background on the company that you started and how you ended up thinking about this so much. Absolutely. I would take you back even a little further in my background because that actually is how I became so passionate about culture. So this was in about 18 years ago. I was in graduate school at that time. I got to experience working with a team at Intel that was a startup under the Intel Capital Program. And we were working a fl- building a brand new product for Intel called Intel Larrabee. Folks who follow the Silicon Circles will know that, probably still remember that name from 20 years ago. It was a pretty big splash of news. Long and short of it, that was that, frankly, I enjoyed working with that team and in that culture so much that it ended up changing the, the path of my career. My original plan had always been that I will go through my PhD and then actually become a professor. But working with that particular team on that product was so much fun that I ended up deciding to not become a full-time professor, just pursue that thing on the side and ended up going down the entrepreneurial path. So hence, culture, I think, is not just a passion of mine that developed post, but it's practically what defines my career and has defined where, who I became, was what I learned while working at that team. So fast forward a few years, I left Intel and then started my first startup, Flux7, in 2013. We were a services company that built its name doing DevOps and AWS work, typically focused on enterprise clients in a few industries. And the main goal would be to help these companies transform how they ran operations and make them more cloud and DevOps-centric, more automation-focused. And uh, when we started with Flex7, we were a garage startup, like most of the startups are. I think where we went a different path from most startups is that when we started doing well, we decided that instead of, at that point, renting an office, which, by the way, I did go and actually look at some offices, we took a different direction and we said, well, how about everyone just works from home when the garage is too small? And that was also motivated by the fact that we did have some offshore engineers working with us. So my point was, well, they are working with us pretty effectively. Why do we need an office here, even though we are in Austin? But that's not a good reason just to take on an expense. We built that organization completely office-less over the course of next 
five years until we reached our exit. And remote culture, my passion for culture and our decision to go remote is kind of how you can say I developed the expertise and some of the experience that we'll be talking about today. Yeah, and I think it's kind of easy in current times to think, well, this is a pretty natural thing. But I remember, you know, we were starting level right around the same time that you were starting Flux 7. And so in 2014, people did work remotely sometimes, but it wasn't just a foregone conclusion that you could run a company remotely in those days. And so, you know, it's interesting that you you kind of so immediately went down that path. That is absolutely right. It was uh, going against conventional wisdom for sure at that time. But I think some of that did have to do with us being a services company as well. Because, And I actually do feel that services companies in some cases are a better candidate for remote work because we were already distributed, like it or not, geographically. There was It was not like everyone was in Austin. So even if we started an office in Austin, a percentage of folks would still be remote. Now, yes, we could get then a second office in some other part of the world and then maybe a third office in a third part of the world. But from the perspective of one office to the other, it really is remote. It's just that you have a group of people talking to a group of people rather than individuals. And so in some ways, while it was unconventional, it was pretty natural for us to go that route because uh, some people are already kind of remote and working from home and we are not seeing them. Why can't we bring that model to the rest of the team as well? So for us, it was actually less of a a stretch, if you will, from that standpoint. It was just a natural progression of where we were headed. I guess the right way to say it is we didn't cave into conventional wisdom. Yeah. Well, I I know we'll spend more time on the remote work aspect of this in a second, but I I think just backing up and even focusing on culture and services businesses is a a good place to start. And like you said, this is something that I know you're, you're passionate about. I think for people who haven't been in a services business or who haven't started a services business, it may not be obvious why creating a culture in a services business is important or why it's hard. So I know I've got my own thoughts on this, but I'd love to start with kind of your thoughts on number one, like why is it a thing to even care about? And number two, is it really a hard thing to do or, or is it just like starting or creating a culture in any other business? I actually believe that culture is more important in a services business than, for example, a SaaS startup if you're starting off. And the reason is that fundamentally, it's been well understood that every business succeeds by being customer-centric and customer-obsessed. In a SaaS startup, that typically implies making my user interface really good. And we all know that companies go through cycles and cycles of making sure that their user interface, their website is extremely friendly and is up at all times. It loads fast and all the right things because the more pleasurable that experience is, the more they are going to use our software product or an app and go from there. Now, turn that into the services business. The fundamental rules of business do not change because we are in services. So the goal still has to be providing a delightful customer experience that the customers will remember and want to come back and use more. But the difference is that our interface is not a digital user experience, but rather a human-driven user experience, which means that the way the human beings interact with those customers have to play that same role, say that the Amazon website plays for Amazon.com, because just the amount of effort that goes at Amazon to make Amazon.com extremely user-friendly, I feel, is the equivalent of how much effort should go into a services business to make sure that 
the culture is built in such a way that employees are genuinely happy and genuinely are aligned with the core values of the business and the correct expectations set with the customer that these are our values then make it a delightful customer experience if you tell them that you're going to be for example our three core values were humble innovative and transparent and we permeated it through every engagement through every sow our customers knew our core values as well because that is how we said what the user experience is going to look like from the first pitch that we had and we did stand by that and that is how we expected our customers to evaluate us and that's the lens we always wanted them to look us at through so i feel it's very important and more important than it is in a company where the most of the staff is kind of behind a web interface if you will or an api to answer your second question really quickly is it different i think it is fundamentally different when you build culture in a services company and it is in fact a slightly harder problem in fact a good statistical way to gauge the difficulty there is if you actually go and say look at the glass door ratings of some of the top services companies and compare them with some of the product companies you will see a noticeable difference the reason is because in a product company fundamentally everything is working towards that one website or that one api but in a services company by definition each group or each individual sometimes even may be working for a different problem for a different customer so how do you keep them connected to your culture makes it a more more difficult problem to actually solve but still yet the more important yeah i, I totally agree on the the last part so maybe to kind of play back some of what you said and and dig into it in a little bit more detail i think services businesses you know fundamentally are people businesses and like you were saying the only interface the only experience that you have is a human one the digital one there really is no digital interface when you're running a services business and so having a kind of feeling or culture that comes through and the people is super important but you have to be deliberate about how you create that or else it just kind of creates itself and it may not be the thing that you you want it to be right maybe to just to ask if you agree with this i think if you're not consciously creating culture some culture is being created within your company but you're not necessarily controlling it or or steering it in any way right i completely agree with that yeah in fact i always say that uh, uh, the most important thing that you can do with culture is to be deliberate about it you have to make that a thought until you deliberate about it and you're conscious about it you will not the culture will get created by accident if it's not intentional and it may not be the culture that you want yeah and i think the the comparison to product companies is good because i agree with you i think a lot of people they start with a mental model that's very based on having a digital product of some sort and the culture you know first i think the culture is somewhat generated by what the feeling or the spirit of that product is but i think the other thing that i've always thought is true in these kinds of services business cultures is you don't have that common rallying cry around what it is that you're doing to your point people are working on different clients they're going from one client to another some people may be engaged with a client for a long period of time they may not interact with their coworkers as much and so it becomes way more important to have some kind of glue around what people do and what they believe and why they're doing what they're doing because there is no kind of common element otherwise there's nothing else that they're kind of all working on together is that do you think that that's right or or do you think that there's a another way around that challenge for services businesses 
I think you're uh, spot on, actually. I would agree with everything said that it is about the deliberation, and that's exactly what makes it challenging. Interestingly enough, that this is one area where the intersection of remote and services, it's actually helpful. Because, uh, like you said, if you're in a services business where, say, your typical employee is spending four or five days a week at a customer site physically, it becomes a lot harder to manage that than if you have a situation where you have a remote team that is mostly working from, uh, I guess in this case, their homes or the equivalent of that in a non-remote culture would be from your office because taking an hour or 30 minutes out of there for a team meeting is a lot more practical than it is for somebody who's physically at a different site. So I think in some ways, remote and services from a culture standpoint might actually be a plus. Yeah. You know, one of the things that you mentioned that I wanted to come back to was the glass door topic. And I think for anybody who's run a business, you've probably had some positive and some negative experiences with Glassdoor. But but my sense of Glassdoor is that it, it's kind of like a trailing indicator. So Glassdoor reviews end up on Glassdoor and, and they say what they say. And to some extent, there's not a whole lot you can do about what happened in the past. You can influence what happens in the future. But I think the thing that I always thought we should do more of, and and I think we we did do a lot of this at, at level was to try to get a kind of read on how people felt about the company and the business before it ever showed up on Glassdoor. And I'm I'm curious. I know you, you've got a lot of thoughts on this, but uh, what's your advice to a founder or a leadership team that's trying to say, hey, you know what, I want to know what's going on before I read it on a Glassdoor review. This goes back to our earlier discussion on it. You have to be deliberate. And uh, I guess I'm going to pull off the classic, you can't control something that you cannot measure. So you have to be measuring it. And Glassdoor is, when you find out that somebody's unhappy on Glassdoor, it is too late. You're absolutely right. So as a matter of principle, you want to have a tighter feedback loop and you want to be hearing from people as frequently as possible. These days, it's actually become a lot easier. There are tools that will actually give you things like micro polls, give you quick ideas, how folks are sensing things. There's mood indicators that you can actually collect even from just Slack conversations that may be happening within your company on how people are feeling. You could explicitly be reaching out and asking them from time to time as well. And we really did all of the above. So we did have a lot of automation and trying to understand the, the sentiment. But then we had uh, some explicit surveys, micro polls going out on a weekly basis, typically just one question every week to get some sense on how folks are feeling. And then we had more explicit one-on-one check-ins, not just with managers, but with the culture team as well to make sure that people are, in fact, feeling the way we think they are. And all of that did contribute to the Glassdoor rating. And so we did have intermediate metrics before Glassdoor, I think is really important to say. The other thing, by the way, talk about being deliberate. When we created OKRs for our quarter, almost always there would be a key result or an objective connected to our either the internal metric or the glass door metric. So in a way, you talked about how to get people to rally around certain things. I would safely say this was one of the top three things that we rallied about, which was let's all build a company that we all enjoy working at. And let's that this was one of the callings that actually brought us all together as a company. And that really helped because culture became everyone's job as well. And everyone was very protective of the culture. And it, it was always music to my ears when, frankly, even in a negative conversation about a particular person and somebody would use the word something like, well, that person is 
not being humble or not being innovative or not being transparent when they actually connected it back to the core values even when the negative feedback it was brilliant to kind of see that that means we had managed to crowdsource culture yeah you've got a common anchor that everyone shares as being the north star for how you should behave or how you should act or what's actually valued at the company given that we were not building one single product that actually all gave us something to rally around as well that we are a company that is very proud of our culture that's great. One more thing on on the measurement piece of it. So, you know, one of the things about Glassdoor is it's very public and, you know, people know what what's out there. For these intermediate measurements that you're talking about where you were doing micro polls or using some kind of statistical process like, you know, collecting employee NPS or something like that. How much did you share that data internally with employees? Uh, very transparent. Every monthly meeting, I would have a slide on what we are seeing. And uh, we will always talk about what are the hypotheses that we are seeing if something is going down, why? And then what initiatives are being put in place to turn that around? And if it's going up, then also why? And what we believe has actually led to these results. So yeah, we, it was a very big, again, everyone owned the culture. So it was a single KPI that we all shared in the company. That's great. We did something very similar. And I, I think that it's a, a good way to model transparency because if you value transparency as an organization, it's easy to be transparent when things are good. It's a little bit or, or a lot uncomfortable to share things when things are, are not so good. And I think that's where you earn true credibility in being transparent is can you talk about bad news? That's when you really have to live the example. So transparency was one of our three core values. And uh, I'm assuming some of my ex-team members will be watching this at some point. So for the first time, I'm actually going to share with them that there were days when I would be preparing for a team meeting and I was wondering, I wish this was not one of those values because <laughs> I really don't want to be sharing this right now, but I have to because that's one of the values and that's what it means to actually have a core value that you live by. No, I, I think that that's an important element of vulnerability as a leader. A lot of times I, I share your sentiment, right? You, I think I always felt this need to kind of portray like it was comfortable to be transparent, but it's not. I mean, it's you'd be lying if you said that it was. I mean, there's always moments where you're just like, oh, geez, like this would be so much easier if I didn't have to you know, be honest you about this, but honest. you do. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, well, I've definitely had those moments. Yeah. You and I probably think about culture in, in a lot of the same ways as it relates to building services businesses. But I really want to get into the remote element of this, because I think this is something where what you did was in, in some ways kind of like starting the path down remote work before it was a popular thing to do. So I'm curious, maybe as a starting point, what what do you think the biggest challenge was that you ran into as you were building this remote working environment? I think the biggest challenge was to convince everyone that this was going to work because it was the conventional wisdom that we went up against. So ironically, I think the biggest challenge came in the early days of just making convincing everyone that this is the right thing to do and this will actually work, come together. As you start to have proof, it became a lot easier. So that particular challenge kind of started to fade away. And in fact, the positives started to emerge and we were able to talk about it with proof that uh, we were doing so well that that particular challenge started to go away. But I think at no point in time can I say that it was a challenge to be remote, frankly. But I think the reason I can make that statement is only because we had kind of paid the 
the price up front, if you will, in convincing everyone that this is the right thing to do. So it was basically another more succinct way of saying that would be that it's required a mindset shift. So you kind of had to do that mindset shift in the beginning. Say if you're hiring somebody, you're making sure you're going to make sure that they are ready to adapt that new mindset. If it's not working out, you do have to make some hard decisions if they are not ready to adapt that mindset. But once you have a team of folks who actually believe that this will work, frankly, there aren't much challenges at all. I actually think it's a lot easier than most people think it is. In fact, whenever people talk about the challenges of remote work, candidly, first thing I do is look at their profile to see if they've actually ever worked remotely in a real remote company. And typically the answer is no. Yeah. Well, just to to dig in a little bit more. So when you say convincing everyone, is that was that convincing your employees or prospective hires, or was that convincing your clients or prospects or all the above? I would say it came at all different levels. So probably should start with convincing myself. Then the uh, employees would be, we would actually run into conversations where we would have to explain why we believe this would work. And in many cases, to be candid, like six months review at the with the employee and the answer would be like, well, when I started, I wasn't sure if this was going to work. But now that I've seen it, I don't think I can ever go back to an office. So some of it was uh, just that. But then it did not stop at just employees. We would have customers get concerned at times as well. where kind of wanted to just get back to the old ways, if you will, of like, can you just send somebody to our office or can you guys just have these people physically present when I'm coming? And uh, we would have to actually explain to them the effectiveness of what we were actually doing and how it was actually better. So I think one of the most telling for me story was uh, we were working with a large Fortune 100 client, our first large enterprise client, and we were approaching a deadline. So the customer, the senior level executive at the company sent me an email saying, hey, can we fly over to Austin or can you guys fly over to our site? And uh, I guess I took a very bold stance and I actually responded back with, here's the data that I have that shows that the collaboration between our teams as is is fantastic and way above the industry average of anybody working in the same office. So I would hate to say this, but I feel that we will risk the project by introducing a new variable that we don't know how it's going to play out. And he agreed, and that project became such a huge success, actually, that it's, uh, it was our claim to fame for years to come. Yeah. Did you ever have to break the remote-only rule, or did you deliver all of your projects fully remote? Very early days, we had one project where we did actually have some on-site presence. After that, it was at least 99% remote. So we, we always used to call it the remote-first culture. So the default would always be remote, and if a, a real need arises to be at a client side to deal with something, we would show up there. So even for that same client, my co-founder Ali did actually fly over and spend some time, a few days there on site. But we did not fly the entire team in. We did not even consider that as an option. Yeah, and when you were having sales or pre-sales conversations with prospective clients, was that all completely remote too? Yes, nearly all remote. Again, remote first. So if a, a real need arose, we would actually fly out to a client, but that would be a very rare occasion. In fact, I always hear stories about consulting company founders being on the plane 24-7. My average over the last three or four years was probably one travel a month, maybe one day a month. That was the max. 
Yeah, my experience was very different. So I, I'm probably much closer to one of those founders that you uh, hear the horror stories about being on the plane all the time. So I, I do get it. But, you know, I, I think that it was in at least in large part due to the fact that we were really kind of like a hybrid of remote and in person. And we delivered that way, too, for some of our clients. You know, one of the things I'm always curious about when I hear about these ways of, of delivering or these ways of operating that are different did your competitors pick up on the fact that this was your way of delivering and did they ever try to use that against you in a competitive setting? So I would actually attach it back to an earlier comment, right? It is about being deliberate about culture. And I think you and I can both will violently agree again that it's also being about deliberate during sales. So frankly, any company that touted themselves as somebody that will fly people in to get the work done, I would not even consider them my competitors. If we are dealing with a client that has an entire remote or a culture where they would value, as I used to jokingly call it, they would drop off a truckload of consultants to your dock, that's not our client. So we would actually finish that conversation and the customer would not be qualified beyond. Yeah, so you, you actually use that as a qualification parameter for prospects. That's exactly right. And to be actually just an interesting fact uh, into positioning, One of the things we actually realized was that the customers that were most sensitive to working with remote teams were the ones that were all co-located in a single building, sometimes even on a single floor. So we would, in fact, when we created prospect lists, would pay attention to that. And if you were dealing with a company with multiple offices, really, they, they may not realize it, but they already are remote. So they would not have any issues with remote. But versus when we were dealing with a company, we did run into one where literally the entire IT department was on fourth floor of an office in Dallas, Texas. Very clear that that's not going to be a good client, should not be the one we should be pursuing in the first place. Yeah. Thanks to all the information available these days, we could actually build an ideal client profile with that criteria and create prospect lists, knowing that these teams have multiple offices. In fact, Clients, especially with offices in multiple countries, became some of our best clients because we would already be, we would meet them exactly where they are. Yeah, they don't require convincing because they do it themselves. Exactly. Yeah. I I do think that what you're saying, though, about clients or prospects who are starting down that path, but not all the way there, are probably an interesting, you know, needle to thread because on the one hand, like you can see it in them, right? That my kind of litmus test was once you're at two buildings, it's too difficult, right? If you're on the fourth floor of one building and you've got a coworker on the third floor of another building, you're going to send a Slack message or pick up a phone or send a text message or something, right? You're not going down the elevator, walking across a campus, going up another elevator. So there, whether that office is across the campus or in another state or in another country, it's almost, you know, it doesn't matter, but they may not have internalized the fact that they have a remote culture yet. So they might still be looking for that kind of comfort that comes from you know being able to be in person, even if they never use it. That is correct. And in fact, an interesting example and why I, we used to use city or different cities as a filter, because folks who would be in, in two buildings in the same campus would still have the ability to join like their daily standup in person, very commonly do, done that. So basically the way we would look at it is if they already have virtual participants in their daily standup, it'll be a fit. If they have zero daily st- virtual participants in their daily stand-up and we'll be the first ones introducing a virtual participant, I can completely understand that'll be a frustrating experience and I don't want to be the first virtual participant in any meeting, frankly. So we would walk away from those deals pretty quickly. 
So do you think that this decision about whether you're remote first or in person, is it binary? Like, is, does it have to be either you're, you're remote or you're in person? Or do you think this hybrid of some people are remote, some people work in an office and I'm, I'm thinking specifically about services businesses, is that workable? I strongly feel it is workable. So the short answer is yes. I think the most important tenant, rather than even getting into remote and non-remote, is what we were talking about earlier, which is talking about having a culture and owning the culture. And a culture can be built around a strong statement here, but a culture, I believe, can be built around any of those settings and environments. So it is more about being intentional. The key would be to, if let's say you're building a hybrid culture, own that culture and figure out how you're going to hit the minimum viable or minimum lovable criteria in that culture. We became a remote only shop and we, we created tools and processes around that. If you're a hybrid culture, you can do that. If you're a physical culture, you can do that too. And I think there's no shortage of companies where people sit really sit next to each other, but hate each other as well. So there's yeah. absolutely no data to say remote is harder, or hybrid is harder. Yeah. I think my maybe strong opinion weekly held on this is I, I think hybrid probably is harder, but I think it's it's harder because I think by virtue of the way that people get into it, I think a lot of hybrid cultures probably come about because people aren't deliberate about we're only going to do in person or we're only going to do remote. And so if you feel like you want to support both and you don't go into it, like you said, with a kind of deliberate mindset around how you create it, then you can very easily, without even intending to, stumble into this way of having these two different remote, you know, two different cultures, one that remote people have and one that in-person people have. And then that leads to a, a different set of challenges. And so I think to your point, hybrid is doable. So I agree with you on that. I, I do think it's, it's harder and it's, it's easy to get kind of sideways in it if you're not being deliberate about how you create it. I agree. And no scientific evidence on what I'm about to say, but I actually believe that one of the reasons we were able to succeed with remote this was 10 years ago, was when the initial team decided that even though the the guys who were right in Austin decided that we are actually going to be remote. So for instance, Ali was literally living three houses down from me. And uh, I think talk about being deliberate, instead of walking over, which he easily could, we preferred to meet each other on Slack and uh, digital media. And that actually really helped because we could both experience the exact same challenges. So frankly, I think the same emulation can be done in a hybrid environment where even if, let's just say you have an executive leadership team, if some of them are hybrid and that some work from home and some work come to the office, I think that'll actually emulate the experience to the leadership team. The challenge would be if all the leadership, everyone comes to the office every day, but then you have office employees who are somewhere remote. I think that's where real challenges begin because no management can no longer relate to what's actually happening with the teams. So that was very deliberate on our part to say hundred feet from each other, but we are not walking over. Yeah. Well, I think like you said, though, the thing that you can very easily slip into if you're sharing an office is even if you're super deliberate about, Hey, everyone's going to join this meeting on zoom from their office, even though we could all be in a conference room together so that everyone who's remote has the same experience you're still getting the benefit in the office from the people that are co-located of the random conversations that happen, the hallway conversations. And I think that's the thing that it takes a, a tremendous amount of discipline 
to not do that because it's so easy to have happen. It happens naturally. I fully agree with that. And talk about we were uh, like being deliberate about culture. I think one of those things that we had to figure out was the equivalent of hallway conversations in a remote environment and how do you actually do that? Because that was probably one of the biggest things that confused everybody was, was that are we going to just completely lose out on the hallway and informal conversation? Yeah. So how did you do that? Slack was our hallway. It was physically our office. We would actually invite our clients to Slack just so they were all part of our Slack as well. So they could see what our office looks like. And uh, the Slack activity was a, a KPI that I used to measure. Slack st- analytics were a very big part of our top level KPIs and measurements. So just to give you an idea, our team would literally have thousands of kudos flying every month towards each other. A typical active customer channel on Slack would have about 10,000 messages exchanged every month, uh, which would far uh, outweigh in some cases, if even if people are co-located, sometimes people talk, don't talk that much. So we actually, again, it comes down to being very deliberate, having real world targets, talking about and just taking a very deliberate approach towards it. But yeah, that's how we emulated. And then we would have, uh, just to break it down a little further, beyond Slack, we did have informal events, virtual events, we would actually get together and have lunch, just everyone, company orders lunch for everyone, has it delivered wherever folks are, and uh, we would actually have Friday game days, where we would get together and play virtual games. So there was some deliberate effort and some creativity that went into making it work. That's great. On the Slack topic, just for a little bit more, so did you look at or did you think about the amount of messages that were happening in either public or private channels as being better or different than direct messages like i guess i'm I'm wondering did you put a, a different lens on dms versus channel-based communications just again to have that kind of like hallway group culture present so our culture was such that we would prefer wherever possible to go public rather than direct message so yes i would actually look at that as if the direct message percentages are going above something is going wrong because we have somehow something in the culture has changed. So yes, I would actually, I did use to monitor that as a KPI on percentage of direct messages versus public messages. And when people came into the company, was there some kind of explicit communication in like the employee handbook or something or the onboarding about how to use Slack? Or was that something that people kind of picked up by living in the culture? We did have a very long uh, document that we call the Flex7 culture recipe or culture book. And that did outline some of these very soft elements of the culture and Slack and how to use Slack. And when we use Slack, even versus, say, jump on a call, uh, were all laid out in there. Makes sense. And it was, uh, and by the way, I should maybe one, one emphasis, it was not the employee handbook. Employee handbook always kind of comes across as a very boring document. This was actually a very fun document with fun pictures and smileys and emojis all over the place. This was just telling people how we behave as, as a company. Well, maybe just one more question on this before we start to wrap up. So if someone's considering building a remote work environment, you've already touched on the importance of being deliberate about it and and thinking through it, but are are there three things that they could take away from this conversation or your experiences of what they should do to to be successful with that? I think we've touched on all three at this point. Deliberate is definitely one, but let's get make it a little more tangible maybe as a response to your question. So I would highly recommend writing down what you expect as the culture. 
So the Flex7 Culture book is actually my most prized possession from Flex7 as a company. I still still puts a smile on my face when I look at that document and uh, very, very helpful. So I think being deliberate to me then turns into let's it, writing it down, not just talking about it. In a building a remote culture, it's even more important to write it down, I believe, although I think it's imp- important in every setting, but even more important in a remote culture. The second, also something we have touched upon, which is to truly people, folks who are creating the culture need to be in a similar environment. So I think hybrid, physical, virtual, you want them to be living the same experience so they understand the challenges and that that deliberation is actually coming from real experience, not just a lab experiment, if you will. And the third piece we have also touched upon, which is the cycle of communication, you have to be more deliberate because the hallway conversations are not there. So connecting people with each other one-on-one, connecting people across the organization with each other, connecting them back with HR very frequently, with leadership very frequently. I used to have one-on-ones with everyone in the team at a lower frequency that I could sustain. Some of those things you have to replicate the hallway conversations, if you will. To be honest with you, I would just make a slightly controversial statement here. I actually believe that the deliberate way of connecting people was far more effective than hallway conversations because you have no measurement, no control, and no organization around them. We were able to do it, I believe, a lot better, to be honest, with having an actual program and plan on how we actually make that work and measuring success of that as we went. Yeah, I I think one of the things that happens automatically or almost, you know, for free, so to speak, is that if you're deliberate about doing it digitally, these conversations can become much more legible in the sense that they're documented and they can be written down or shared or, or digested in ways that hallway conversations honestly can't. And it becomes really hard to keep people in sync with those hallway conversations. Whereas if you've got this kind of prescriptive way that you go about doing it in a digital setting, then people can kind of read up on things that they missed in Slack or read up on the, something that, that happened digitally that there's a, an actual kind of written record of. I completely agree with that. That's definitely how I think it transpired for us. Cool. Well, one more thing before we wrap. So uh, we haven't talked at all about Vixel and what you're doing now. So so maybe it'd be good for you to give a little bit of an overview of what you've been doing after Flux 7 and some of the exciting things that you've, you've got going on with Vixel. Absolutely. So Flux 7 was a great learning experience for us. We went and uh, built a services organization, uncovered a lot of these lessons, sometimes the hard way and other times we just got lucky around the importance of things like culture, but then how do you build the sales side, the delivery side, the cash management, everything was a learning for us because we came from a technical engineering background. So when I was uh, deciding what's going to be the next venture, went back to rule number one of entrepreneurship, which is go back and scratch your own itch. So we knew that there was actually a challenge with early stage services founders that there is practically no institutional help or even references available to guide them on how to make their decision right. I think uh, you hear the sentence, services companies are hard to scale all all the time, but nobody ever then finishes that sentence by saying, and this is how to do it better. So we decided to finish that sentence and say, well, let's come up with a way to do it better. There is There is knowledge out there, but it's all scattered. It needs to be institutionalized. There's People like yourself, Chris, who actually have built services companies, have very strong opinions and know how to do it. 
But so let's actually build a platform where all of that knowledge and expertise could be gathered and then made available to folks who need it the most and have the least access, which is the early stage services founders. So all that combined and putting it into a real model, we have built Accelerator, which is the first startup accelerator to our knowledge in the world, which focuses exclusively on IT services companies and early stage, which we define as under $6 million in revenue. We're carefully crafted to before even the private equity gets interested in the companies. The idea there is, is you bring those folks in, take them through a 90-day boot very much inspired by Y Combinator, which is a model company, and help them. We have adopted the Y Combinator model over to the services companies to just help them turn the tide within the 90 days, create some tangible outcomes, and then continue to help them for about a couple of two-year period after the bootcamp so that they can see the actual results of the efforts. I love it. I think one of the things that we talked about when you were first telling me about this is something that you and I both experienced, which is there's no end to the articles online about how to run or start a product business, but there's a real large gap of the same types of articles for services businesses. So you're, you're helping to fill that gap. I completely agree. Actually, even the few articles you find are typically talking about the, the challenges and I've, I've written by folks who have not necessarily built services companies, but are just talking about what's wrong with the services as a business model. So I guess I'm a, I'm completely <laughs> bullish on the services business in the IT sector. I do believe it plays not just an important role, but frankly, is an enabler for all the product business that's happening too. And uh, hence, I just thought I'll double down and let's actually make this into an ecosystem. Great. So for people who want to learn more, where do they learn more about Vixel? So the, the first source would be our website, which is wixel.com, V-I-X-U-L, wixel.com. You can also look at our LinkedIn page, which has information and a lot of the most recent updates. And always feel free to reach out to us. The You can get do that through LinkedIn or through email. Awesome. Well, Arthur, thanks for the conversation today. This has been great. I really appreciate you sharing your insights and some of the lessons learned along the way for culture and services businesses. Likewise, well, thank you very much for having me. All right, that's it for today's episode. You can find show notes and more posts on topics like this one in my newsletter, Time and Materials. It's available on Substack and at chris-hart.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-H-A-R-T.com. And of course, you can subscribe to the podcast and to the newsletter so that you don't miss out on anything. I'll talk to you next time. And until then, remember to submit your time card. Time card.